In the fourth quarter of 2012, 35.4% of all Americans lived in a household where someone received federal welfare. That's 109 million Americans where someone in the household received federal welfare. The, the welfare that I'm talking about is what's called means-tested programs, such as uh, Medicaid, food stamps, uh, WIC, which stands for Women, Infant, and Children, um, housing assistance, things like that. We're not talking about Social Security benefits or Medicare or unemployment programs or uh, veterans benefits. We're not talking about those, but rather means-tested uh, welfare programs. So there's 109 in 2012, 109 million Americans who in that fourth quarter lived in a household for means-tested welfare. Uh, someone in that household received means-tested welfare. That same quarter, there were 103 full-time year-round workers in America. In other words, there were fewer full-time workers in America at that time than there were those living in households that received means-tested welfare, welfare programs. And when you consider that 16 million of those full-time year-round workers were actually government employees, uh, it becomes pretty clear that there's a problem in our country. When you take that, when you consider that number, 109 million people living in households where there's means-tested welfare, that's more than the com combined combination. Five million more people than the combined combination of California, Texas, New York, and Florida. And so there's a, there's a very complicated problem in our country. And I th what, there's a lot of reasons why the problem is so complicated. One of the factors that makes uh, this idea of uh, means-tested welfare so complicated is the fact that many corporations today intentionally underpay their employees to the point that those employees who would prefer to be self-sufficient cannot be self-sufficient. You think about your bank tellers, usually they get paid uh, very little and have, have their hours uh, very reduced to the point that uh, essentially uh, employees like that, employees and some of these other huge companies um, have to go on means-tested welfare in order to even survive. So you have a, a, a situation where these corporations are profiting off of the government's welfare programs for individuals. And when you have that and the, all the money that the corporations pay toward the politicians to not change the rules, and you have a lot of people who they receive benefits and they don't want the rules changed because they're afraid that those benefits and those funds that they need to survive can even be cut off, uh, we have a, a pretty serious problem. And we could probably talk a real long time about welfare and uh, government programs. And even if we spent the entire day talking about it, which we won't, and we came up with our own solutions, it really wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. Uh, why? Because we have the rules makers, the politicians in government, who they're not going to change the rules no matter what kind of good common sense solutions that you and I can come up with. And so we're not going to talk uh, today about uh, the federal government. We're not going to talk about something that's way beyond our control. Uh, we're going to, a lot of people want the government to be downsized, and that sounds really good. 
I want us to downsize our comments. And so instead of talking about way out there in Washington, D.C., and federal programs and 109 million people, we can't control any of that, um, let's bring the choice down to our own lives. Let's talk about our own choices. And I think that hopefully you and I can make better choices than our government makes. And so we're not going to talk about the federal government on a, on a wide scale. We're not going to talk about that. And we're certainly not going to bash people who um, are struggling to make it to their next paycheck. I've been there. Perhaps you've been there. Most of us have been there or we're currently there. where we, it's, it's a real struggle to survive. And so we're not going to bash those people whatsoever. What we're going to do is we're going to take a very important look at a at an aspect of our lives that uh, sometimes just sort of goes overlooked. And it's something that's built into the heart and into the soul of every person. And it's something that you already do. And so we're going to look at this idea of work. What it means to work. And the benefits of working. And so I want you to take your Bible and we're going to continue on in 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 6 and read through verse 12. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at some benefits of what it means to work and how we can best do that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And so we're going to look at some of the benefits of uh, working, and I want to explain to you uh, some things. And you might think, well, what do I need to hear this sermon? You know, I'm already working. I'm all, already perhaps a student. I'm doing. I'm achieving. And that's good. But I want to just encourage you to keep on that path and ask you to consider some things that perhaps you might not have considered before. One of the first benefits of uh, being a hard worker is this. Working maintains good fellowship among fellow Christians. Verse 6 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who re leads an unruly life, and not according to the tra tradition you received from us. You might look at verse 6 and say, wait a minute, that doesn't say a thing about working. It doesn't even say a thing about laziness. No, it doesn't say that explicitly, but the entire context of the passage is about idleness. And it's the warning against idleness. And the word that's used here is the word unruly. An unruly life. A disorderly life. And uh, there, now there was another word that Paul could have used that meant idleness. But he used this word unruly and it's this idea. 
that these uh, lazy Christians that Paul was concerned about, they were more than just lazy. They were actually causing problems in the fellowship of faith because of their laziness. You see, the things that some people say, oh, you know, I can do what I want. It doesn't affect anyone but me. No, it does have an effect. It has an effect on the people around you. And if you're involved in church, it has an effect on those in the church. I was at a, another church some years ago, and we had a, a man there, a grown man, very able-bodied, uh, could, do, could do a lot of things if he chose to, but he rather preferred to be a sponge off of other people. And it created a lot of conflict in the church, a lot of murmuring and rumbling, and people went the other way when they saw him coming because they knew he was coming for a handout. Um, Paul says that this is more than just idleness. It's an unruliness. It's a disorderliness. You know, when you and I consider about someone, maybe you read the uh, second page of the newspaper and you see all the police report, that's always fun to look at, you know, hopefully you don't see your name there, but uh, you see the police report there and someone cited for disorderly conduct. You know, when you and I think about disorderly conduct, what's that person done? Well, maybe they had the music turned up too loud. You know, maybe they got in a fight with somebody, you know, an argument, a loud argument with somebody. They caused some kind of problem in the store or something like that. And they were cited for disorderly conduct. Not the worst crime in humanity, but, you know, a crime nevertheless. Paul says that laziness is a disorderly conduct for the Christian. When you're lazy, when you refuse to work, when you're an able-bodied person and you refuse to work, uh, that you are causing an unruly situation, a disorderly situation. You're causing problems. You're causing trouble. Now, I want to shed some light on the specific situation that Paul's addressing in Thessalonica because we might miss it if we're not careful. Here's what was going on. In that day, sometimes a lazy person who didn't want to tend to his own business, he would do this. He would convince a wealthy patron to hire him on as an aide. He knew who the wealthy people were in town were, and he would follow this person. Can I get you anything? Can I do anything for you? Can I run to the store? Can I be your advocate at the city hall? Can I, what can I do for you? And this person was basically a leech off of this wealthy person. And sometimes these wealthy people, sure, do this and throw them some money here and there. It wasn't actually a productive job, but it was just a situation where someone was completely tied to, yoked to, this wealthy patron. And this dynamic, it created a dynamic where a lazy person became a sponge, became a leech, just a hanger-on, trying to get as much money out of the wealthy as possible by doing the least amount of work possible. And so later on in verse 11, Paul rebukes this rather explicitly. He says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And specifically, that's what Paul's talking about. Not, the, not someone who's just a gossip all the time. That's not what, necessarily what Paul means by busybody. He means some of you people refuse to work, and some of you people are sticking your nose in someone else's business trying to sponge money off of them. And Paul rebukes that kind of behavior. And so, you know, you and I might look at it and say, well, what, you know, isn't this just supply and demand? What's the big deal? You know, someone needs an aide and they hire you on as an aide, as a butler, as a maid. No, that'd be a legitimate job and that'd be okay. 
But this was not a legitimate job. This was someone that was simply being an uninvited leech to another person's wealth. And there's a lot of problems with this. Problem number one, you know, it became a way out of, out of working for a living. Instead of providing some type of legitimate product that could benefit society, some kind of provid- uh, uh, legitimate service for the betterment of society, these were able-bodied sycophants who diminished their own self-worth by becoming nothing more than beggars. They demean the image of God within them because part of that image of God within you means that God created you to work. What did God do the first six days? He worked. God did things. And then he rested on the seventh. He provided an example for us. And that image of God is built into each one of us. You and I were created to work, but when you become nothing, when you choose as an able-bodied person to become nothing more than a beggar, then you are diminishing the beautiful image of God within you to create something, to do something, to better society and glorify God by that. And so that's a problem, and Paul addresses that. A second problem with this kind of situation where someone is a leech off the wealthy is that the church is supposed to be a community, community of faith that expresses certain ideals. We're supposed to be a community that expresses love for one another. People should look at the love that we have for one another and say, those people are believers in Jesus. They act just like Jesus. And one of the other benefits or one of the other ways in which the church should be a blessing to the community is to be a a place where there is genuine equity among believers. In other words, when you come and you gather among other Christians here, it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor. It doesn't matter whether you're tall or short. It doesn't matter whether you're skinny or more healthy like me. It doesn't matter whether what your skin color is, it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what your last name is. When we come to gather with God's people, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we are all just sinners saved by grace. But if someone in the community of faith has chosen to be a leech off of somebody else. He has chosen a path where he is not an equal to someone else. He, is, he has chosen a path where he is subservient to others. He's completely dependent upon others. And that's a problem for the church's witness in the community. A third problem with this kind of setup is that uh, this kind of uh, financial pat- patronage It yokes two people together who may have opposing views. In other words, let's say you're a Christian and you're one of these able-bodied leeches that are just trying to get some money off of um, of a wealthy person. Can I do anything for you? Can I get you anything? And the person that you're uh, trying to get money from says, Sure, I don't have time to go make my sacrifice down at the pagan temple. Will you do this for me? Well, that's a problem for you as a Christian, I would hope. And so when you yoke yourself, when you tie yourself to someone else who has opposing views and opposing values, that can become a problem 
for Christians. And you shouldn't put yourself in that kind of situation. And so in verse 6, Paul instructs Christians to do this. He instructs the church. Stay away from Christians that are acting like that. Stay away from these Christians who are able-bodied leeches, who refuse to work. Shun them. Don't hang out with them. Stay away from them. They are harming the cause of Christ by being a lazy sponge living off the wealth of some patron. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more at length next week about what it means to shun a believer and even what it means to excommunicate a believer because those are two different things. And Paul goes on to address that a little bit more in the next passage that we'll study. And we're going to distinguish between these two, between shunning and excommunication. We'll see when we should do one and when we should do another. But now let's just just suffice it to say that shunning is intended to make clear to the unruly person that their behavior is unacceptable. When you're engaged in unacceptable behavior, obvious unacceptable behavior as a Christian, and you call up your brother in Christ and say, hey, let's go get some coffee. And they say, brother, I can't do it. You're not, you're not acting right. Hey, let's go play some tennis. I'm sorry, can't do it this week. You need, you need to get some things right in your life. That takes a lot of courage for a Christian to say no to his brother in Christ, to his friend. But you know, if you're truly a friend, if you're truly a brother in Christ, you need to uphold a standard. A standard by which this other person should live. You know, it's amazing how many people um, expect the church to excuse bad behavior or even endorse bad behavior. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes the people who've left the church have done so because they don't want to live up to the common, decent standards to which Christ calls us. And when they're encouraged to live out biblical principles, well, they just pack their bags and leave, take their ball and go home, they get upset and they leave. And it's amazing how many people uh, do that. Listen, we're not going to diminish the standards that uh, God has given us in Scripture at this church. We're not going to do that. We're going to uphold a standard that isn't that difficult to reach. And if someone fails to live up to that person, we're not going to crush them. We're not going to condemn them, but we're going to help them. We want to help them live a holy life. And so if you're a good worker, Paul says, you don't have to worry about being rebuked for being lazy. But if you're not a good worker, Paul instructs those of us that are to stay away from Christians that are just being lazy sponges who could work but refuse to. And I would point this out as well. Verse 6 If you read it again, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. This command is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you disobey this command, you're not just disobeying Paul. You're disobeying Jesus. This command is given in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a very serious thing for us to work hard. Now quickly, a few more principles. Working makes you a good example to others. Verse 7 says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Jump down to verse 9. Paul says the same kind of idea again. He says, It's not because we don't have the right to this. What's Paul talking about? He said, When I came to Thessalonica and I brought the gospel, guess what? I didn't ask to receive an offering. Paul says, I worked hard during the day and I preached the gospel I I worked hard all the time 
And he said, it's not because I didn't have a right to receive remuneration for preaching the gospel. Paul did have a right to that. But Paul refused his rights to that. And he says in verse 9, in order to offer ourselves as a model to you so that you would follow our example. Paul says, I modeled these principles. I practice what I preach. You know, every so often you'll come across a time where Paul talks about himself. But he always does so, it seems, when he's offering himself as an example. He's trying to persuade believers to follow his example, and so he does that here. He says, I was a model, I was an example uh, to you for this, and I want you to act like I acted. I want you to work hard. And so working hard does this. and makes you an example to others. Third principle, working hard keeps you from being a burden to others. Verse 8 says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any one of you. Paul says, when I came and I preached the gospel and we started this church, I was a hard worker. And one of the reasons was I didn't want to be, be a burden to you. Notice that Paul says he didn't eat anyone's bread, quote, without paying for it. Literally, the word is freely. I didn't eat anyone's bread freely. I didn't eat anyone's bread for nothing. I wasn't a sponge. I wasn't just doing this in order to gain something from, from you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, the worker is worthy of his support. Jesus established a timeless principle there. But Paul intentionally kept himself from receiving remuneration for his ministry in Thessalonica so that he could keep from burdening them. Paul chose a path that he didn't necessarily have to choose, but he chose a path for their benefit so that he would not be a burden to them. If you're a hard worker, you're not a burden to someone else, but if you're a lazy person, you are. You're a, bur you're a burden to other people. Other people are paying your groceries. Other people are paying your bills. You're a burden to other people. And so we need to be careful about that. Fourth principle about work, working allows you to receive necessary benefits. Verse 10, Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. There's a good principle right there, and it's right there in the New Testament. The Testament of grace and mercy, right? If you're not willing to work, well, guess what? You need to go hungry. He shouldn't, he shouldn't eat if he's not willing to work. But I want you to notice something about verse 10. Paul is talking about those who are not willing to work. He's not talking about those who are not able to work. And he's not talking about those who are having, a difficult, having difficulty finding a job. He might be in between jobs. He's not talking about someone when times are tight and the community is hurting, and you just really can't find work out there. He's not talking about that person. He's talking about the person who is able-bodied, there's ample opportunity, who refuses to work. That person should not eat either. There's a young man at a, at a previous uh, church that I pastored who had Down syndrome. And it was, it was severe, you know, some, some people with Down syndrome, uh, you know, are very functional, but other people have more struggles, and this young man had more struggles. He, he couldn't speak very much at all. He could smile, a beautiful smile, um, but uh, just uh, uh, 
couldn't, couldn't do much when it came to communication. But this young man graduated from high school, and he went on from there, and he was still able, if he and his parents wanted to, for him to live at home. And he had every reason in the world to be nothing more than someone with a disability. But that's not what he did. He moved into a group home with some other people with the same situation as him. And every day he went to work and he made things with his hands. This young man is an example of what any one of us who have more abilities than that should, should be and that we should do. You know, there's no excuses. There's no excuses. Unless you're completely disabled, unless there's just no jobs out there, there's no excuses. And so if you're willing to work, then you should receive the benefits that are necessary for life. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. My daughter works at United Supermarkets, and uh, she's already uh, uh, received a raise there and, and uh, been promoted from a cashier to a checker. And that may not seem like the biggest deal to you, but for someone who's a teenager, someone who wants to major in business, someone who wants to be a manager someday, uh, she has a goal in mind. And I told her, and I would say this to each one of us, it's not always the chosen one, the one that's the most beautiful, the one that's the most obvious, the one that's the most intelligent, the one that's the most glorious, the, the son of the manager or anything like that. It's not always that person that gets uh, the greatest benefit in the long run. I said, usually it's the hardest worker. Usually it's the person that shows up on time, works all the way through their shift, works when it's good, works when it's bad, smiles when the customer cusses them out, is that person who's the hard worker that rises to the top eventually. And she's learning that lesson. Diligent, a diligent hand can make you wealthy. A fifth principle about work is that working keeps you self-disciplined. It keeps you self-disciplined. You might say, well, a disciplined person works, but guess what? A working person remains self-disciplined as well. It's a two-way relationship. Verse 11 says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, we read, At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Paul's talking about some of the ladies in the church who were out of control. And they had learned to be idle, to be lazy. In fact, that was one of the complaints about philosophers in that day. All oh, you philosophers, you're nothing more than busybodies. You just live off of rich patrons, and some of them did. And maybe that's why Paul was so, uh, so intent on and insistent on working with his own hands when he got to Thessalonica. He did not want that accusation to stick to him as he went out into the public square and he preached about the Lord Jesus Christ. A final principle about work is this. Working keeps you from being rebuked and embarrassed. You know, one of the most uh, difficult things I've ever had to do is when there's been a, uh, a member in the church who 
is going through a hard time and, and uh, if I had any role to play in a benevolence fund and having, making a recommendation as to whether someone in the church should receive some help going through a hard time. You know, my inclination is absolutely, we want to help everyone. But there's been times when someone has abused the, the system. There's been times when someone has uh, said, uh, I need some help, and they come back later, and they won't look for a job, and they want more help and more help and more help paying their bills. One of the hardest things I, I ever have to do is to tell a church member who won't tend to their own business and support their own family, I'm sorry, but we can't help you anymore. It wasn't about the funds not being available. It was about their lack of discipline. And it's always an embarrassing thing for, for them, and I'm embarrassed for them. But it's a gentle rebuke to say to them, you need to change your behavior. We're here for you, we love you, but you have to change your behavior. Verse 12, Paul says, Now such persons we commend and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. First Thessalonians 4.11, Paul addressed this in his previous letter to the Thessalonians. He said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Paul says there is an opposite of meddling in other people's affairs. It's doing your own thing, working with your own hands, tending to your own family's affairs, minding your own business and doing it in a quiet way. You know, this is a, a reminder, I hope, for each one of us who are hard workers, who look for opportunities to benefit our families, to be blessed by the benefits of what working can truly do for us. If you want to look at the greatest example of someone who worked, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say about work? He said, I came to do the work of my Father. And Jesus accomplished every single thing that his Father had given him. Every single thing that the Father said to do, Jesus did. And when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I have done everything that you've commanded me. And on the cross, what was it that Jesus said as he hung on the cross? Right before he died, he said, it is finished. All the sins of the world were paid for when Jesus died on that cross. He did everything that God had commanded. And the Lord is our example. The Lord is the one who calls us to this. And the Lord is the one who calls us to follow him. The best workers should be those Christians that follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be known for our hard work. We should be known at the workplace as someone who gives a good, solid, consistent testi testimony through our work for what God can do in a person's life. I hope that's true of you. And I want to give you an opportunity today, if you need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, we're going to have a song in just a minute, and I'm going to invite you to come during this song and just uh, take him by the hand and say, Pastor, I want to receive the Lord today. I want to follow him, and I want to be a good worker for him.